Hey, everybody. It is Monday, November 20th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, for those of us in America, it's a short week for many of us. Thanksgiving on Thursday. It is. I don't know where this year went, which is like the stupidest comment to say, but it's just it, time goes so quickly. She says after she said it. <laughs> <laughs> but time goes so quickly. I can't believe it's already Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving feels like it's a little bit earlier this year. We, we have a full week after Thanksgiving of November. The Gregorian calendar playing some tricks on us this year, Jill. Any big plans? No, most of my family lives on Long Island. So we are here. We don't ever really need to travel far. And in my house, we are on the countdown for what is just known as the game. It is the Michigan-Ohio State game, the Saturday after Thanksgiving every year. So uh, we're officially, it's, it's game week. We should note uh, to all of you podcast listeners that we will have new editions of the pod tomorrow and Wednesday, and then we'll have a couple special editions out for you, including this week actually marks 60 years since the Kennedy assassination, Jill, and there's lots of theories out there as to what actually happened. So I have an interview uh, we'll be putting out on that, as well as a couple special editions related to the um, war in the Middle East as well. All right, Moshe, let's get to the headlines here. The face of AI, Sam Altman, fired by OpenAI, but now he's in talks to come back to the company. Yes, it is as strange as it sounds. And no, he was not replaced by AI. (laughs) We'll explain. (laughs) The AI was so good that that he just replaced They're just like, that'll be our next CEO. The robot is the CEO. The latest from the Middle East, an update on those premature babies at Al-Shifa Hospital, their status, and video that Israel says shows two of the hostages that were taken by Hamas were taken there to the hospital on October 7th. Also some interesting polling related uh, to the war here in the U.S. Rosalind Carter, former first lady, died on Sunday at her home in Georgia. We'll take a look back at her life. Tragedy at a Taylor Swift concert in Brazil. The state of the 2024 race and why Nikki Haley is the darling of Wall Street. Sean Diddy Combs settled his lawsuit in record speed. And the Thanksgiving week forecast, plus Moshe has on this day in history. Jill, a big birthday for the president today. And uh, we'll look back at Home Alone 2, one of my favorite sequels of all time, which we should say stars another former president. (laughs) Okay, let's start with the personnel drama over who leads chat GPT into the future. It was a wild weekend at the most well-known artificial intelligence company in the world, So first on Friday, Sam Altman was ousted from his role as OpenAI's chief executive. OpenAI is the company behind the popular app ChatGPT. The firing of Altman, who to many was this human face of generative AI, really sending shockwaves across the tech industry. Microsoft is among the companies that is heavily invested in OpenAI, more than $13 billion dollars. And execs there reportedly not told about the firing until right beforehand. So after Altman was fired by the company board without warning on Friday, the co-founder and former president, Greg Brockman, he stepped down in solidarity along with a slew of senior researchers. Other staff members have reportedly pledged to resign as well and follow the two of them to other projects, signaling their support on social media. 
Then within 24 hours this weekend, Altman and Brockman were already in talks to return to the company as the staff we mentioned was rallying behind them. Altman and Brockman joined executives at the company's headquarters on Sunday after interim CEO Mira Marathi told staff that she invited Altman, according to the website The Information, there was speculation over the reason behind Altman's removal as CEO and from the OpenAI board of directors, which, again, really came as a shock to Altman, staff, and investors. An internal memo sent to staff said the decision to unseat Altman came as the result of, quote, a breakdown in communication between Sam and the board. A memo from the COO, Brad Lightcap, said the decision quote, was not made in response to malfeasance or anything related to our financial business safety or security privacy practices. The board effectively said that Altman hadn't been totally honest with them, but it is unclear specifically what was at issue. The New York Times reported Sunday that the conflict may have come down to how fast OpenAI was growing and how much or how little attention was being paid to AI safety at that company, which was valued at about $85 billion. Yeah, incredible valuation there, Jill. So the Times has some interesting details here on what appears to be both a a larger vision issue and a personal issue. One of the people behind this is a guy named Ilya Sutskever. He's an AI researcher and a co-founder of OpenAI, along with Altman and several others. He apparently was increasingly worried that the company technology could be dangerous and that Altman was not paying enough attention to the risks of AI. Sutskever is a member of the company's board of directors, which incidentally, now with Altman gone and Brockman gone, at least for now, is down to four people. He apparently, Sutskever, also objected to what he saw as a diminished role inside the company, and it comes as there's an internal debate at OpenAI, as they transition from nonprofit to very much for-profit, Altman was fundraising for a custom AI chip. Uh, the project code name was Tigris prior to his unexpected firing. There's also reportedly a huge share sale coming up uh, that will increase the valuation of the company. Altman is also in the process of raising tens of billions of dollars to get additional new projects off the ground. So again, it comes to a larger vision thing. This is a fast-moving situation, though. As we record this, there appear to continue to be talks about Altman returning to the company. He posted on Twitter over the weekend an image of his OpenAI guest badge with the caption, first and last time I ever wear one of these. And it comes as Altman already had plans to potentially launch his own AI venture. He's like, screw this. You know, you guys have fired me. I'm going to launch my own thing. And they're like, no, 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 no. You're totally invited back. And that apparently appears to be the issue here. It reminds many folks of uh, what happened with Steve Jobs at Apple. He was forced out in 1985 and then invited back 12 years later. It just, that took 12 years. And given that we now live in 2023, this took 24 hours. Um, you, you might recognize Altman. We featured his sound on the podcast. He's been the face of AI, appearing in congressional testimony, talking about the safety of AI, what needs to be done, a regulatory agency necessary, um, has really just shocked uh, to prominence here as a major face of artificial intelligence. And he really led the effort to transform them into a for-profit company, negotiating that first billion dollars from Microsoft, now $13 billion. It's all the investment that's allowed them to build GPT-1 through 4 over the last year. Um, And so, you know, ultimately, there are large questions about what is the most, at this point, prominent AI company in the world. Moshe, as you just mentioned, we should note OpenAI is also in talks for what's called tender offer funding. It would allow the 700 or so current employees to cash out shares in the company. The deal would value OpenAI at more than $80 billion. 
nearly triple its worth from just six months ago. Yeah, and the company's success here appears to have only heightened the concerns that something could go wrong with AI as the company continues to explode. Satskaver, I mentioned him earlier, the guy who apparently pushed out Altman, said recently, just a couple of weeks ago on a podcast, that it doesn't seem at all implausible that we will have computers, data centers that are smarter than people. What would the AIs do then? I don't know. So, uh, you know, Altman saying we totally have this under control. Satskaver saying we don't have this under control. Clearly, you know, a, a vision issue there, but something we're all watching very closely because we've all been very concerned, including the federal government of late, as to whether AI companies are being too laissez-faire, whether they're creating sentient AI at some point. Uh, and so this tumult, this kind of internal fight at OpenAI is getting a lot of attention, um, deservedly so. But Mosh, he is so synonymous with OpenAI. It would be like if Mo News had a board and we're like, Mosh, it's, <laughs> it's just not Jill, working out. what do you guys have planned? What do you have planned? <laughs> you had a good run. Thanks for starting the company. You're out. And then a day later, you guys call me being like, all right, all right, you're invited back. How do we get you back here? There is some reporting that if he were to go back, that he's like, <laughs> this board is not okay. I, I would need an absolutely new board. And we should note that this board is not like a normal corporate board. This is like a vestige of the nonprofit days. I think there's like a professor from a university um, on the board. There's only four people, including Suskaver, who pushed him out. Altman was on the board. Brockman, who left, was also on the board. So they went from six to four. Um, so clearly, he'd have to reset things. But I think they have a larger challenge at the company because they've exploded in growth. Um, and Envision, especially in the last year, as AI has exploded. So what needs to happen there? And again, the board says that he didn't do anything nefarious of sorts. He just wasn't honest with them, aka he lied to us about some stuff. What did he lie about? Unclear. And so we'll keep you guys up to date on what we learn. All right, Moshe, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about what's going on in the Middle East. Health officials say 31 premature babies that were in extremely critical condition have been transferred safely from Gaza's main hospital, and they will be going to Egypt. Emergency medical workers from the Red Crescent and the World Health Organization took the infants by ambulance to the Rafah crossing in southern Gaza, where they were getting urgent care. The World Health Organization saying 11 of the babies were in critical condition and that all were fighting serious infections. Two others died before the evacuation could take place. The World Health Organization saying the babies, along with six healthcare workers and 10 family members of hospital employees, were evacuated under extremely intense and high-risk security conditions. Fighting has raged at and around Al-Shifa Hospital now for more than a week. More than 2,500 civilians, patients, and staff members left the facility on Saturday after receiving an evacuation order from the Israeli military, several hundred patients still remain behind. World Health Organization officials labeled the hospital as a, quote, death zone Saturday after touring the facility. The Israelis, though, accuse Hamas of using this hospital as a command center and have for weeks called for evacuations of the facility. On Sunday, the IDF released surveillance footage of Hamas fighters actually bringing captured Israeli hostages to the facility for care, as well as footage of stolen Israeli vehicles and additional footage of what the Israelis say is a Hamas tunnel that began on hospital property. The argument is that the hospital officials were complicit in the abduction of hostages and also lying about the Hamas presence at the facility. 
in this video released by Israel, you could see there are tons of hospital personnel watching, even if they're not directly involved with the hostages that are seeing what is going on as the hostages are being brought into into the hospital. Right. The Hamas fighters arriving in Israeli military vehicles, bringing the hostages in, you know, uh, some guys carrying guns, you know, demanding care for these people on October 7th. So you can see the timestamp on the footage there. These health officials, Jill, in talking to folks there are in a really tough spot because they effectively operate with the permission of the Hamas government. And of course, they're there to care for whoever is injured and sick that comes into the hospital. At the same time, the only reason you know we make note of this here is that it is a reason to take statements from medical and hospital officials denying Hamas presence with a grain of salt. Yeah, the Israeli army saying it found a 55-meter tunnel about 10 meters under the hospital's 20-acre complex, which includes several buildings, garages, and a plaza. It said the tunnel included a staircase, blast-proof door, and a firing hole that could be used by snipers. The army also said an independent medical report determined that a female Israeli soldier, Noah Marciano, whose body was recovered in Gaza last week, had actually been killed by Hamas in the hospital. It is the second hostage body that was found near the hospital in the last few days. Speaking of hostages, there's been a lot of talk about a deal. Now, for a couple of weeks, we've been talking about it on the podcast, um, and there were some reports over the weekend that they are edging closer to a final deal. The Washington Post late on Saturday reported that there was a tentative deal that would free about 50 women and children currently being held hostage in Gaza in exchange for a five-day pause in fighting. They're calling it a pause, not a ceasefire, but five full days there. The hope is that if they successfully release the women and children, that other groups of captives would follow. But U.S. and Israeli officials threw cold water on that reporting on Sunday, saying there is no deal yet. And, you know, there have been a lot of logistical questions back and forth over who would stop doing what, when, who would go first, um, etc. Now, the hope is that if there's a stop in fighting here, that would allow a significant increase in the amount of humanitarian aid, fuel, etc. coming into Gaza. But Hamas has to agree to a deal here. The Israelis have to agree to a deal. The decision to accept the deal is difficult for Israel. Now, there is strong domestic pressure on the prime minister there, Netanyahu, to bring hostages home. A march of more than 30,000 Israelis to the prime minister's office took place over the weekend, effectively demanding that Israel do whatever it takes and offer whatever they need to to bring home hostages. But there are also loud voices in Israel, including in the war cabinet. They're split effectively. Uh, Netanyahu's inner core, the argument against is that they have Hamas on the run here and that the group is weakened. They're launching less rockets. They've taken out a lot of leadership. They're incommunicado with each other and that a five-day ceasefire would reverse a lot of those gains against Hamas. And so the Israeli prime minister finds himself in a difficult position. You know, do you bring home whoever you can bring home? You set a certain precedent in terms of what you're trading in exchange. At the same time, you know, you're also trying to defeat this terror group and the people who were involved with the massacre on October 7th. Barak Ravid, he's an Axios reporter, also reports in Israel. He's actually a great follow on Twitter for those of you who are still on the platform. He had some good reporting on Sunday on why things are taking so long. It turns out a lot of this hostage exchange hinges on Yahya Sinwar. We've told you about him. He's the Hamas leader in Gaza, who was actually the brainchild of the October 7th attacks. He's key to these talks. He's the, he's one of the key decision makers in terms of how many of the hostages go home. Apparently, he went silent for a few days last week um, and then came up again and said, oh, I'm ready to talk again. So you have these talks happening in Doha. You got the Mossad, you got the CIA, you got the Americans, you got the Israelis, you got the Qataris, you got the Egyptians. 
And then they're making calls to Gaza, and they have the head of Hamas in Gaza who's involved in these talks. One more thing we wanted to make note of, it was a very busy weekend uh, in regards to this war. President Biden had an op-ed piece out over the weekend in the Washington Post, effectively laying out his vision for what things need to look like. He you know, begins by saying the U.S. supports the democracies of Ukraine and Israel fighting against Hamas and Russia. Israel has a right to defend itself. Gaza cannot be ruled by Hamas nor be used for terrorism again. He then gets into the long-term solution on the need for a two-state solution of Palestine living alongside Israel. He says that it would happen under a revitalized, what he says, Palestinian Authority. They currently rule the West Bank. So his vision is for them to come back and rule Gaza as well. Though notably, he also did put some pressure on Israel in the piece, saying that the Israeli government needs to do a better job of stopping violence in the West Bank territory. That's where uh, violence right now is emanating from some Israeli citizens who live in settlements and towns there who are attacking Palestinian civilians. President Biden saying in his piece that the U.S. is considering visa bans on all those individuals um, who live out there. Clearly a move here by President Biden to clamp down on Netanyahu's right flank on the more right-wing part of his government government um, that is very supportive of these settlers uh, in that territory. And then zooming out of the region, another related development that we're watching, the Yemen-based Houthi terror group seized an Israeli-linked cargo ship in a crucial Red Sea shipping route on Sunday. The Iran-backed group took over two dozen crew members hostage, saying that they hijacked the ship over its connection to Israel. The cargo ship is called the Galaxy Leader. It is affiliated with an Israeli billionaire there were no Israelis on board. The 25 crew members are from a, a range of nationalities, including Bulgarian, Filipino, Mexican, and Ukrainian. The ship was flying a flag from the Bahamas, actually. U.S. defense officials confirmed that Houthi rebels seized the galaxy leader in the Red Sea on Sunday afternoon. The rebels descended on the ship by rappelling down from a helicopter. The Red Sea stretches from Egypt's Suez Canal down to the Horn of Africa, and it is a key trade route for global shipping and energy supplies. So that's why the U.S. Navy has stationed multiple ships in the sea since the start of this Israel-Hamas war on October 7th. Yeah, the Houthis have really been one of the main groups here that Iran backs has been involved in things, shooting missiles um, at Israel, bringing down an American drone. Uh, and so there's been a lot of back and forth here. The Navy destroyers have also brought down a couple of the uh, missiles the Houthis have shot off here, but certainly a uh, concerning situation, especially as we continue to be worried about things evolving into a larger regional war. Keep in mind, there's been now more than 60 attacks on U.S. bases across the region in just the past four weeks. All right, time now for the speed read from AccuWeather. Let's start with a look at the Thanksgiving travel forecast with a record number of Americans on the road this week. Between 55 and 56 million people will take to the roads, skies and rails to travel during the week-long stretch around Thanksgiving, according to AAA. AccuWeather meteorologists believe the greatest negative travel impacts associated with the storm will be in the Midwest from today until Tuesday and in the Northeast on Tuesday. Some weather-related travel issues could linger into Wednesday. There is a likelihood of severe thunderstorms, which includes the potential for tornadoes in portions of Louisiana, Arkansas, and Mississippi from this afternoon into tonight. Much of Tuesday will be wet in the zone from the central Great Lakes to the Appalachians. So it's going to be foggy. There will be slick roads. And so the dangerous travel conditions may be the result. Also, some of you this week, Jill, might get a white Thanksgiving. 
Is that a thing? A white Thanksgiving? Do people dream about that? <laughs> no, but I'm not mad at it. T- tell us everything, Mosh. You're going to have to live at a higher elevation in the east, it turns out. Uh, from three to six inches of snows in the forecast for the Adirondacks um, and the Green Mountains, six to 12 inches is forecast to pile up from central New Hampshire into northwestern Maine. You guys should see up to 15 inches up there um, in the northeast. So be on the lookout there, though. For most of you who live in that neck of the woods, you're used to that sort of thing. AAA is forecasting that this Thanksgiving holiday will be the third busiest in more than two decades. More than 55 million Americans will travel at least 50 miles from home this year. 49 million of you will be driving. The TSA is also expecting a record number of passengers this holiday season. Over these next 10 days, running through next Tuesday, the TSA expects 30 million passengers to be flying. So, Moshe, as we always like to say, of course, in reference to any probably local or cable TV channel that you're going to watch. Pack your patience. Yes, if we could make a bingo card for local news this week, we would just put pack your patience um, in all of the squares. It's something they don't officially teach you in journalism school, but somehow we all come out (laughs) saying it. (laughs) And so if you see any reporter at an airport, train station, or highway overpass uh, covering it, there's a one in three chance that they will end their report with, pack your patience, everybody. Also a comment that has never once been uttered in real life by anybody. (laughs) Why? You don't, you tell your friends like, guys, you're, you're, you're in for a drive this weekend. You better pack your patience. Well, I don't have room. Can it fit in the carry-on? <laughs> Staying with weather-related matters, Jill, we should note that despite the rain and the snow and some of the conditions we'll see here in the U.S., it's relatively amazing compared to what you're seeing right now in South America, where there's record heat happening as that part of the world heads into summer. The heat in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, a city of nearly 7 million people, has been disruptive and deadly. The heat index in recent days hitting 120-130 with the level of humidity they're seeing down there. You might have noted we uh, covered it on the Instagram account over the weekend. There were sweltering temperatures on Friday night during the Taylor Swift show in Rio. It led to a woman who died just before the show. It was then so hot on Saturday that Swift postponed her concert scheduled for the next night, saying the safety and well-being of the fans, the performers, and the crew will always come first. So uh, a weather situation we're watching down in South America right now. From Politico, Rosalind Carter, the former first lady and humanitarian who championed mental health care and provided counsel to her husband, former President Jimmy Carter, died Sunday at her home in Plains, Georgia. She was 96 years old. Former President Carter, who just turns 99, said in a statement shortly after her death, Rosalind was my equal partner in everything I ever accomplished. She gave me wise guidance and encouragement when I needed it. As long as Rosalind was in the world, I always knew somebody loved and supported me. The Carters had celebrated their 77th wedding anniversary this past summer. They are the nation's longest married presidential couple. Carter is also the second longest lived first lady in history. Bess Truman died at the age of 97. Carter, who married the future governor and president in 1946, was widely credited with expanding the role of the first lady beyond the nation's most prominent hostess to an active partner in policy and international travel, becoming a trusted advisor. Yeah, in their long post-presidential lives, she would remain by his side through public and private matters. Jimmy Carter would often say, the best thing I ever did was marrying Rosalind. That's the pinnacle in my life. Jill, there was a Today Show clip we posted of Katie Couric asking him when uh, Jimmy won the Nobel Peace Prize, what was the greatest moment of your life? Is, is it the Nobel Peace Prize or was it being elected president? And he said, no, it's when Rosalind said yes. 
to marrying me. I saw that on the Instagram account and I was just thinking like, would my husband ever say that? I would, I would, I wish he would say that about me. They, they, they had a very sweet relationship. I mean, amazing to think married 77 years. Uh, you noted her role as first lady and her advice did lead to some important breakthroughs. It was apparently her suggestion to Jimmy Carter to invite then Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin and Egyptian President Anwar Sadat to Camp David. That became the site of their stunning 1978 peace deal between Egypt and Israel. She also served as an envoy to Latin America. Now, we should know Jimmy Carter, Republicans definitely, and most Democrats would say not the greatest president in history. It's one of the reasons that he lost re-election significantly in 1980. But that then led the Carters to have more than 40 years post-presidency uh, where they really focused on giving back and charity efforts. And that's where she devoted herself to a lot of important social causes, that includes programs supporting healthcare resources, human rights, social justice, the needs of the elderly, mental health. Uh, she worked closely with Jimmy on Habitat for Humanity projects. She would host annual symposia on mental health at the Carter Center, which they built several decades ago. Again, uniting experts and advocates for discussions of mental health, family coping, uh, supporting research, and reducing the stigma of mental health, a huge issue that she prioritized for many, many years. And Jill, one more fun fact I learned as I was reading up on all of this it was Jimmy Carter's mother, a nurse, who delivered Rosalind. What? Um, and apparently introduced them as babies to one another in Plains, Georgia. And the two of them knew each other at a very young age. In fact, Jimmy had proposed to her and she's like, I have to finish high school before I can marry you, Jimmy. A real love story. That's so cute. All right, checking in on politics from the Wall Street Journal. Big hitters on Wall Street lining up to support Nikki Haley's long shot bid to snatch the 2024 Republican presidential nomination from former President Trump. The journal spoke to about 30 senior execs on Wall Street who say there is a desperate, desperate hunt for anybody but Trump. The former president they see is too unpredictable, among other concerns. Nikki Haley, who already has high profile admirers, including outgoing Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman, has been busy this week charming others, including J.P. Morgan Chase's Jamie Dimon and BlackRock's Larry Fink. Jamie Dimon, who leans Democratic, has told people Haley seems to understand the business world and could get things done. That tacit endorsement is rare. The highly influential Diamond typically does not signal support for candidates. Ken Griffin, the founder of the investing giant Citadel and one of the biggest Republican donors, told Bloomberg News that he is flirting with throwing his support behind Haley as well. It comes as Haley's poll numbers have been rising in Iowa, New Hampshire, the first two voting states that come up in just about eight weeks, though she still trails Trump by anywhere between 20 to 30 percent um, in those states still. So we're going to keep watching this, Jill, but it's interesting because they, a lot of them initially were into DeSantis. They became disenchanted with DeSantis. And so many of them in recent weeks moving towards Haley's side. We'll see what that means and how that translates with voters. Staying on the Republican side of things here, a Colorado judge on Friday ruled that former President Trump will appear on the state's presidential primary ballot next year that waves off the latest argument raised by some liberal groups that are trying to disqualify Trump from being on the ballot for a second term over his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Now, while the Colorado judge, her name is Sarah Wallace, found that Trump engaged in an insurrection on January 6th, inciting the mob that stormed the Capitol, she wrote that she does not believe the Constitution allows her to stop him from being on the ballot. She does not believe that the provision in the 14th Amendment, Section 3, it's called, that disqualifies officials involved from insurrection from running 
applies directly to the president himself. Now, this will likely be appealed and may end up in the U.S. Supreme Court, but it does come as judges in three other states, Minnesota, Michigan, and New Hampshire, have also shot down these similar legal claims about the 14th Amendment to boot Trump from the ballot in recent months. Staying with politics from NBC News, Joe Biden's approval rating has declined to the lowest level of his presidency, 40 percent, as strong majority of all voters disapprove of his handling of foreign policy and the Israel-Hamas war. This is according to the latest national NBC News poll. The erosion for Biden is most pronounced among young Democrats, a majority of whom believe Israel has gone too far in its military action in Gaza and among voters 18 to 34, with a whopping 70 percent of them disapproving of Biden's handling of the war. Pollsters say that they can't recall another time when foreign affairs not involving U.S. troops transformed the American political landscape. Now, keep in mind, Biden's overall approval is down just one point from September, 41 percent to 40 percent but still pretty historically low for a president looking for re-election next November. The poll also finds Biden behind former President Trump for the first time in a hypothetical general election matchup, although the deficit is well within the poll's margin of error for a contest that's still more than 11 months away. So some alarm bells for Biden here. What stands out, frankly, Jill, is this shift among voters 18 to 34. Back in September, 46% of basically Gen Z and younger millennials said they approved of Biden's job performance. Now, 31%. So almost a third have left him in just the last month. And young voters is a key group he needs. They were vital in 2020. He'll need them again next year. Um, Foreign policy playing a role here for them at this exact moment, though we should note foreign policy never typically important when it actually comes down to the ballot, always comes down to the economy and domestic issues. We'll see where we are next November. But when it comes to foreign policy right now, only 34%, one in three Americans approve of Biden's handling of the Israel-Hamas war. 56% say they disapprove. Now, the Republicans' lack of support here, not surprising, they disapprove of everything Biden does, no matter what. We saw the same thing from Dems during Trump, saying no matter what he did, uh, they would disapprove of it. What's significant here is Biden's erosion among Democrats. Only half of Democratic voters say they approve of Biden's handling of the war. And again, those numbers are very low among the younger Dem set. Notably, the poll did find that a plurality of American voters, 47 percent, believe Israel is defending its interests in the war and its military actions have been justified. By comparison, 30 percent think Israel's military actions have gone too far or not justified. And 20 percent of Americans, one in five, say, I just don't know enough to have an opinion. People do that still? I didn't realize. I guess one <laughs> in five people who answer the pollster's <laughs> call say, you know what, I'm going to be honest with you. I just, I don't know. I'm not going to have an opinion here. Now, the question is how many of the other 80% actually don't know enough, but like don't care to admit it. Either way, still significant. You have about 47% saying Israel justified, 30% saying they've gone too far, 20% no opinion. But when it comes to Biden's handling, people just, I think there's a larger brush they're painting here, which they just don't like, they don't have the confidence in the guy right now. And that includes younger Dems, which is particularly concerning to some Democrats and has led some Democratic officials, as we've been telling you on this podcast, to say, Biden, time to hang it up. You know, time is getting short here. And Biden saying, nope, I can totally beat Trump. I'm sticking with it. Jill, we have a long way to go, about 50 weeks until Election Day. Gavin Newsom <laughs> chomping at the bit. <laughs> Gavin Newsom has NewsomForPresident.com ready, yes, ready to go, Jill. He just hasn't just turned it on case. yet. 
And from People Magazine and another fast-developing story over the weekend, one day after a lawsuit was filed against rap mogul Sean Diddy Combs, it was settled out of court. Combs and Cassie Ventura reached a deal after she accused Diddy of rape, sex trafficking, and domestic violence and more in New York. They announced Friday that they resolved the claims in the lawsuit to their mutual satisfaction. The parties added that there will be no further details about the terms of the agreement released publicly, although talk around the time of the lawsuit was that offers and demands in the tens of millions of dollars were going back and forth. Yeah, this likely wasn't very cheap. Uh, Some background here. Ventura and Combs met back in 2005. She was 19. He was 37. He then signed her to his label, Bad Boy Records, and the two later began dating. In her lawsuit, she had some really horrific allegations of a decade-long cycle of abuse, violence, and sex trafficking. Now, she says in the statement, Cassie says, they decided to resolve this matter amicably on terms that I have some level of control. Combs also issued a statement saying effectively the same and that he wishes Cassie and her family all the best. This, of course, allows both of them to avoid a messy trial, prevents her from having to relive this trauma, and of course, prevents him from uh, having to see a lot of these very negative details and allegations come out. We should note that Combs's lawyer clarified, Jill, that this agreement is, quote, in no way an admission of wrongdoing, totally not admission of wrongdoing, that this was just an amicable way to end this. So there's that, Jill. But one question I still have that was not addressed in the reporting so far, does Kid Cudi get a new car? Because if you listened on Friday, the lawsuit alleged that Diddy blew up Kid Cudi's car, the rapper that apparently had an interest in Cassie at the time. Kid Cudi said, yeah, he totally blew up my car on my driveway. No word on a settlement for Kid Cudi and whether he gets a new car from Diddy. One of the more bizarre details to come out from that lawsuit. Right, right. Horrific details. But the the, the Kid Cudi thing was just like, what, what is this? Is he freaking? Is he, <laughs> is he insane? Is Diddy in the mafia? <laughs> is, he in a, is he in a drug cartel? Like, who does this stuff? <sighs> All right. Now time for On the Stand History, Jill. A happy birthday to Joe Biden today. He turns 81 years old, born in Scranton, PA, on November 20th, 1942. Um, Jill, he's already the oldest president in American history. He's now an even older president. He's still the oldest president in American history. Um, and certainly, as we discussed earlier, that's one of the concerns you're hearing from voters, because he will be 82 if he's elected next year uh, on Inauguration Day for the second term, and he would leave at the age of 86. So, Nonetheless, a happy birthday to Joe Biden today. The subject for Politico Playbook's uh, nightly email today was a not so happy birthday for Biden. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, that's one of the things on his birthday. He's dealing with Ukraine. He's dealing with China. He's dealing with Israel. Then he's got all his domestic stuff. Though Those are his favorite issues. He loves foreign policy. That was always his big thing in the Senate. But it's, it's a lot. I mean, he's 81. Joe. Joe. Moshe, I had said this when he first announced that he was officially going to run for re-election. And this was before all of this drama in the Middle East, etc. Like, why? Just enjoy your 80s. Enjoy the rest of your life. He was only 80 back then, Jill. Ah. All right, moving on here to this next item. On this day in 1947, actually, Joe Biden's fifth birthday. That's when Princess Elizabeth, at the time, married Philip Mountbatten in Westminster Abbey. She would, of course, go on very quickly to become Queen Elizabeth and serve for a very, very long time. Moshe, I know you were going to watch The Crown this weekend. Did you get to any of it? We did. We did. So it's a two-parter. They've put out the first four episodes of the final season. This goes into the final days of Diana. 
and Dodi Fayed that they did a very good job with it, Jill. We uh, we binged all four episodes, and then part two comes out in December. Definitely recommend it. And the actress who plays Diana like has her mannerisms um, and look down pat. It's incredible. And they tease at the end that part two in December will be all about William meeting Kate. So it really takes you up to modern day. Does Is it going to get to Meghan Markle, Harry? I don't believe so. I feel like they need a whole other season. We could dream. We can dream. <laughs> All right. On this day in 1983, that would have been Joe Biden's 41st birthday. <laughs> Most. <laughs> Should I keep this trend going? <laughs> <laughs> On this day in 1983, people of a certain age might remember this, a TV movie called The Day After aired on ABC. There was a time, folks, when there was an afternoon TV movie that would air and was highly watched. This one was watched by 100 million people, including President Reagan at the time. One of the reasons, it postulated a fictional war between NATO and the Soviet Union over Germany that escalates into a nuclear exchange between the U.S. and the Soviets. And it focuses actually on Kansas City, Missouri, getting hit with a uh, Soviet ICBM and effectively the nuking of Kansas City, Missouri. So this was a shock to the nation. Um, The point of the film really was to show the impact of nuclear war as people kind of talked about the missiles and, and there was escalation at the time between the U.S. and the Soviets. Interestingly, Reagan watched this and noted in his diary, they would find later, that this film had an impact on him. And as the US and the Soviets were negotiating, reducing their nuclear stockpiles at the time, the film was also translated and shown in the Soviet Union. And finally, on this day in 1998, that would be Joe Biden's 56th birthday. American Most. tobacco companies signed an agreement. Any with chance we have to get a Joe Biden <laughs> interview is gone, officially. Listen, this is, this is all fact. This is all very factual. Um, It was the big agreement in 98 on this day between tobacco companies and states over the connection between smoking and lung cancer. The tobacco companies paid $206 billion, which at the time was the largest civil settlement in U.S. history for uh, the health impact of cigarettes. All right, we end here, as always, with a bit of pop culture news on this day in 1992. Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, premiered in theaters. Another plot, Jill, another Home Alone plot that could have easily been solved by cell phones. (laughs) I mean, basically, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Just text Kevin, hey, we forgot you, like get on the next flight. That family, though, man, I don't can't even imagine, even with a lot of kids, forgetting a kid. No, but it made for a classic Christmas film and a classic sequel. Um, By the way, that sequel, of course, takes place at the Plaza Hotel And at the time, a certain business leader owned that hotel. His name was Donald Trump. Um, And in order to be able to shoot in the lobby, they gave Donald Trump a cameo. So it is the only uh, Christmas movie with a presidential cameo, Jill. Though the uh, Trump critics like to note, it is the only Christmas movie with a president who's been impeached twice or indicted for times. That was his requirement. He's like, I'll let you do it, but I need to be in the movie. It's, it's unclear whether it was a demand or sort of like, uh, it's nice, but there is that moment where Kevin's looking for directions and Donald Trump points him, you know, in the direction of wherever he's going. You know, I was, I've been rewatching Sex in the City. He also has a cameo in a, an episode of Sex in the City. There was a time where Donald Trump was just this, you know, kind of billionaire celeb type. And, you know, before he got into politics. And finally, a bit of music history here. Pink's Misunderstood album is released with hits like Get This Party Started and Family Portrait on this day in history. Jill, they turned 22. Pink still crushing it in her career. 
the pink album 59 years younger than Joe Biden. <laughs> You can't help yourself. Um, All right. We wanted to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. We'll help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. And thanks to all of you who are joining Mo News Premium. So grateful to all of you who are joining and supporting what we're doing here at Mo News. In this week of giving thanks, I'm giving thanks to all of you. And if you'd like to give thanks to Mo News, come join Mo News Premium. You can do it over at mo.news slash premium. It lets you support our independent journalism, support what we're doing on a daily basis, but also get access to a members-only Instagram account and members-only podcast. So go check that out right now for just $7 a month over at mo.news. Okay, bye, everybody. Later. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.